Good to see everyone who's back out this evening. I suspect it will be raining pretty good by the time we, we leave, but I'm glad you're all here. And um, I want us to look at something tonight. It actually is taken from, as you can see on your outline, a quote from Edmund Burke, um, and that is that all that is necessary for the triumph or victory of evil is that good men do nothing. So tonight I want us to talk a little bit about the idea of when good men do nothing. Um, as we're thinking about this, and I'm thinking somewhat about the lesson from this morning, and generally speaking, from all that the nation, and maybe even we could say the world right now, is going through in anticipation of the next several days, there's a lot going on out there, as Edward said. And... I'm certainly not going to preach a political sermon, but whether we're talking about an election or we're talking about the, maybe the, the direction that a nation is going, a family is going, a church is going, or an individual is going, whether we're talking about any of those things, it, it does us well to stop and ask ourselves, you know, what is the purpose? Why am I here? What's the great purpose for my being here? Um, to remind myself that I have a purpose. There is something I'm supposed to be accomplishing. And if I consider myself a good person, then I'm going to have to do my part. You may notice on the outline that I said in the battle between good and evil, it's not usually the numbers that determine. But in an election it is, obviously. But it's not necessarily the numbers that determine the outcome. If we believe in God, and I know you do or you wouldn't be here tonight. If we believe in God and we believe in how he governs and how he oversees things, we know that he is looking for righteousness. He's looking in my life to find righteousness, and if he does, I'm going to be victorious and my soul is going to be saved. He's looking within our home. He's looking within a nation. He's looking at the world. And while the overwhelming numbers might be bad, God is looking for what is good. So it's not usually the numbers that determine the outcome. In fact, many times, and we can see a number of those in Scripture itself, many times the side for right bears beats, if you will, overwhelming odds. So more often it is that if evil wins, if it triumphs, Again, I'm not just talking about the election. This can be in any situation. If evil wins, it does so because good men, good people, uh, Edmund, to, to quote Edmund Burke or paraphrase, it's because good people aren't willing to stand up and fight for what they know is right. Now, I'm not going to re-preach what Edward said this morning. It doesn't need to be. He did a great job, and I can't say it any better than that. We're not talking about fighting for a candidate here, and we're not talking about you know, taking a side in an election. I am more talking about, as Edward was talking about, our taking our place in the kingdom of God and doing what we're supposed to do. Let me make a couple of very basic observations, and these aren't anything profound. Just very basic observations. Number one, when good people do nothing, when good men do nothing, to quote Burke, then they get nothing good done. Now, that's not profound, but it is the truth. You have good people, and you have them equipped. They should do good things. But if they don't do them, then good doesn't get done, is the point. 
If we look in the Bible, and I want us to look at a couple of verses and, and, and just look at them very basically. Look, first of all, with me at Luke chapter 6 and something Jesus said to us. Now, oftentimes, people do good or they accomplish something because they know they're going to get something back for it. It's an investment, if you will. And I hear more and more increasingly, I will hear Christians talking about making an investment with what they do that is good, and the whole idea of investment is return. I don't put my money in a CD. I don't invest my money in some piece of property or whatever it might be, expecting to, to break even or certainly expecting to make a sacrifice. That's not why we do that. We expect to get a return. Well, if we're making... If we're doing good, if I'm doing something that is right, I'm doing something that is good strictly and only because of what I'm going to get back, then I'm missing the point. Read with me one verse. Luke 6, down in verse 35. Jesus said it like this. Love your enemies. Do good. And notice, do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. I have to ask myself a question. When I look at that, I, I have to be very hard on myself and say, are you a good person? Well, I... I hope I am. You know, I expect I am. I want to be. Well, in your giving, do you give? And I'm not just talking about the money we lay in the plate. I'm talking about just overall in my life, all the giving, not just the money, but everything, my time, my talents, etc., etc. Is the overriding motivation to give because I want to do good, or is it because I'm going to get something back for that? Am I faithful to my wife because I'm going to get back a good marriage? If that, is that my motivation? Or would I be faithful to my wife no matter what the situation were? If she were totally, you know, debilitated, incapacitated, and didn't even know what was going on. Am I good to my children? Am I good? Do I do my job at work when the boss is looking over my shoulder? Or because I've got the job and I'm thankful to God for it and it's the right thing to do? We go on and on with that. Jesus said, do good, not hoping that you get return, not an investment of good, but just doing good because it's what you can do. And because, notice as Jesus says, and your reward shall be great, but not necessarily here. You may do many things that are good that other people don't even take notice of. He says, and you shall be the children of the highest. Do good, not looking for, and maybe I could, I could qualify that and say an immediate return. Not just from, well, it did come, didn't it? Not just for the good that I'm going to get back from somebody immediately. Go with me to another passage in Ephesians 2. As we're just looking at the fact that we are to be doing good. Look with me at Ephesians 2. And this is an off-quoted passage that talks about, by grace are you saved through faith. And when I was in school um, down in Virginia, this would be quoted quite a lot, as you can imagine. Because they believed in salvation by faith only. But I would often point out verse 10. You know, they would read verses 8 and 9, and I would point out verse 10, and I would say, yeah, but the idea of a Christian, the whole idea of being a Christian is to be a servant to Jesus Christ. Let's read verse 10. We are his workmanship. We could translate that handiwork. He has made us, or remade us is the idea. Notice, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Literally, into good works. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the life of a Christian is to be characterized by good works. That if you take the sum total of the life of a Christian, his life is good works. I understand that my purpose for having been uh, 
recreated by God, saved by God, baptized into Jesus Christ, that now my purpose is to do good. It's as simple as that, to do good works, to do the things in his steps that Jesus would do if he were here. So if I come upon someone who needs help, I give them help. Why? Because Jesus would do that if it were him. If I need to be compassionate towards someone, I am. Why? Because that's what Jesus would do. If I'm, you know, if I'm a person who doesn't always exert all the force and strength that I have to beat someone down because I'm more powerful, why would I reserve that? Because that's what Jesus would do. If I forgive someone, then I do that because that's what Jesus would do if he were here. And the truth is, I'm a Christian created unto good works, to do all those things the Lord would do. So to be a good person... We often ask that question. You know, we say, so-and-so is a good person, or am I a good person? Well, you can answer that very simply. What good do you do? If I am a good person, I do good. The idea of good people, good men, good women, is that they do something. And what they do is good. Now, let's go a little bit further with that. To do good, a person's got to do good with what he has, or with the good or goods that he has. You know the passage, and let's turn back to it for a moment, in Matthew 25. We, have, we know this passage, the parable of the talents. As soon as I say that, I'm sure most everybody in this room says, okay, well, yeah, I, know, I know the parable of the talents, I know what it says. But let's look at it uh, for a moment. To be a good person, I've got to do good with what I have. The Bible very clearly says, Jesus very clearly, clearly says here, in verses 14 and 15, that Christians, his servants have been given, he has distributed to them, his goods. That's why I went to that list I just went through. If Jesus were here, he would do that. That belongs to him. That act of compassion, that situation in which I can help someone or forgive someone or whatever, that's his situation. It belongs to him. And he's enabled me to do good, and he's given me that opportunity. And now he's given me the responsibility to use what I have to do good. You know the story. Look at verses 14 and 15. The kingdom of heaven, as he continues to talk about it, is as a man, and I think this would be him, traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And, of course, to the one he gave five talents, which is a piece of money, to another two, to another one. But he gave to each one according to his individual ability. And... Then he took his journey. Well, isn't that what Jesus has done? Jesus has taken a journey from earth. I go to a place. I'm going to prepare that mansion or that place for you. I'm going into a place that you can't come now. But what I'm doing is leaving you the responsibility to carry on what I've done. Do as I have done. Do what I do. Jesus would teach something. And he would say, go do likewise. Jesus would do something. Like washing the disciples' feet and saying, now you do the same thing. That's who we are. Good people do good with what they have. And yet when you look at this story, you know that the five-talent man, as we often call him, and the two-talent man, went out and doubled the money, and the Lord came back, and he was very pleased with that. Notice in verse 18, for example. He that received uh, one talent, though, went and digged in the earth, and he hid his Lord's money. And then after a long time, the Lord comes back. And if you look at this story and you examine what goes on here, it's very interesting to me. 
And, and it's more than just, when I look at this story, I see more than just a lazy guy who didn't double the money. Now, on the surface, it, it appears that way, that way, but let's look further at it. There's a lot going on here. So let's notice in verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of the servants comes, and he reckons with them. It's like opening an account book. Let's see what you owe. And that's what Judgment Day really is. And so he that received the five talents, obviously he doubled it. And he said, verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant. Verse 22, the one that received two doubled it. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now notice down in verse 24. He that received the one talent, the one piece of money, not apparently, not a great amount of ability, but enough. Enough ability to be given this much opportunity and to have placed on him this much responsibility. And he's expected to use it. And so the Lord comes and opens the account book. And so he began to confront the, as we call him, the one talent man. And the one talent man responded back in verse 24, and this is what he said. Lord, I know that you are a hard man. Now, very seriously, that a lot of Christians think in terms of Jesus is a hard man. We wouldn't want to say that. We'd want to say a loving master, a kind man, a, you know, a, 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 a one who gave his life for us, but a hard man. Now, notice this is a Christian, incidentally. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven here. So a Christian says to Jesus on Judgment Day, I know you're hard. You're a hard man, and you reap, notice, what you have not sown. And he says, you gather where you have not strode or planted. I'm not sure we envision people saying that to Jesus. In other words, Jesus, you're hard. And you've come back to reap what you didn't sow and, you know, and to gather what you didn't plant. Now, is that fair? A lot of people might be quick to say, well, that's not fair. <laughs> you know, we wouldn't say that. But Jesus never objects to that. And the man goes on to say in verse 25 here, I was afraid. Now, is that normal? Well, I ask you this. Have you ever had the ability to do something, to do good, and you had the opportunity to do it? And you even really knew deep down inside, I have a responsibility to do this thing. And have you been afraid? And I can name several situations, and I think you probably can too, where I really don't like those situations, and sometimes I'm just afraid to get in them. I don't want to be in those situations. And whether it is what other people think, or they do, or how they treat me, or whatever, I was afraid, the man said. I was afraid. And so I went and I hid your talent. Notice as he says it that way. I hid your talent. What is a talent? Is it an opportunity? It's certainly not an ability, because the talent was given based on the ability. So is it an opportunity? Is it a responsibility? Is it both? I think it is. And what he is saying is, I hid that. I safeguarded that. And I looked at this, and it can be a lot of things. It can be applied to a myriad of situations. But let me apply it to one that I think is easy to see. The person who is always going to do so-and-so. I've been guilty of that many times. 
I am going to do this. I am going to. I almost went forward this morning. I'm going to tell you that honestly. I didn't know if I'd say that during the sermon tonight, but I'm going to. And I was going forward not because there's some great sin or the police are about to come arrest me. It wasn't that. But it was just for the fact that when I was listening to Edward preaching and I was thinking not about all the people out there that you know have gotten carried away in the election and all of that, but I was thinking about the things that Edward was saying about taking your place in the kingdom and knowing that I, it would be easy for me to go back over the last week and say, hey everybody, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. And you would say, well that's good. That's a lot of good. But I know I know the truth is there is more I could have done. And there were times when I could have done something I didn't do. And there have been too many times like that, too many weeks, too many days, too much of life like that. And I'm guilty. And that's the truth. And whether you know that or Montel knows that, and I haven't even told her that. She's hearing that for the first time. Or Juliet knows that, or Wes knows that, or anyone else knows that. I know it, and Jesus knows it. And so the man said, I was afraid. And I safeguarded. I went and I hid. I kept in a safe place your opportunity. It was like it was that opportunity, that thing I knew I could do, I knew I had the ability to do, I was scared to do it, and so I just kind of boxed it up, and it was always there. My whole life, I could do that thing. But I didn't. And so, here, Jesus, here's your opportunity, your responsibility, back to you. Now, Jesus, how does he react to that? He answers and says in verse 26, You wicked and slothful servant. Notice that. You're wicked and you're lazy. And you knew. That I reap where I have not sown. And you knew that I gather where I have not strode or planted. You knew that. And you know that's the truth. Because Jesus, he spent his time on earth. He gave his life. And beyond that, he's given us the ability and he gives the opportunities and we believe that. We should believe it. If we say, and we want to say during this election and at other crisis times, God is in control. Well, He is. And He's in control every day, all the time, about everything. And sometimes when He's in control, He's saying, Michael, this is what I want done. And I'm not down there to do it, but you are. And you're able to do it, and it's your opportunity right now to do it, and it's your responsibility to do it. Go do it. And it doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter that someone else thinks that you've studied the Bible enough and you know a whole lot about it. That's just great. But if you knew there was something you didn't study and you need to be doing, then get to work. Or if there's someone that needs to be talked to or someone that needs to be helped or someone that needs to be treated in a certain way, and no matter how many others you have, if you've got this glaring opportunity and you're not, you're guilty. And I am, Jesus is saying, I am a hard man. I really expect to gather where I have not sown. And I expect to reap what I have not planted. I expect it because I made you. Ephesians 2. 
By grace are you saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But we are his workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Jesus is saying, I made you. I remade you. I saved you. And I sent you out to do these things. I was afraid. Not good enough. It's just not. And I'm not going to turn over there, but if we were to go to Revelation 21 and we were to see the list of sins and the sins that will send a person to hell, the first in the list is not child molestation. It is being a coward, the fearful and the unbelieving, etc., etc. So Jesus says to the one-talent man, of course, you know the story here. You know the end of the story. Take him away. Cast him into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It said, when good men, when good people refuse to use the good that the Lord has given them and take advantage of the opportunities and shoulder the responsibility, then Jesus stands in judgment of those good people. And that's what this passage is teaching. Too many churches, too many Christians do nothing. And that's the truth. That's not an indictment against this church here. I think we do a lot. And it's not an indictment against any one person here. Because I think I could go around the room and I know most of you, if not all of you, well enough to know the things you do in your life. And I really know there are a lot of good deeds being done. But that isn't the point, is it? The point is what I know of myself as I stand before my Lord, who is going to open the book and take account of my life. Too many churches, too many Christians do nothing. And that's the truth. And I mean relatively speaking. It doesn't mean there's not a straight good deed here and there. But it means they do nothing with what they have and what they should be doing. They just become bystanders. You remember back when we were preaching about the, you know, fulfilling my purpose last year? And I kept putting up that 80-20 with that great big question mark? A lot of people remember that. And what I said in that was, it is just a rule of thumb. It doesn't matter if you're talking about a church, or you're talking about you know, a business, or, or whatever, that when you look at any organization, any situation like that, it usually is 20% doing 80% of the work, and 80% doing 20% of the work. And when we look at that particular situation, if we apply that to a church, and experts say it applies, overall, generally speaking, that means there's a whole lot of people not doing good with what they have. And so when good people do nothing, and they merely become bystanders or spectators, kind of watching what we're doing. Let's say here at East Orange, kind of watching what the church is doing, kind of watching how, you know, how we conduct things. We have a business meeting next Sunday, not, you know, men that are members here, not part of it, but kind of just observing. What decisions did you make? What did you decide? What are we, quote, unquote, going to be doing? Etc., etc. And become bystanders and, and spectators of the Lord's work. They're on the sidelines, and yet they are the first people, generally speaking. When something goes wrong or when something needs to be done, they're the first people that are asking the question, when are they going to do something? When the truth is, why didn't we get it done? And that can be true of a church or a nation or a family or whatever it might be. Go back with me to Matthew 21. Turn a few pages back. And let's go back to this parable for a moment. It was very early Tuesday morning as I account that final week. And Jesus 
on Sunday had gone through the streets, the palm branches being cast, Hosanna in the highest, you know, you're the king, etc., etc. And by Monday, in less than 24 hours, it is obvious the Jews had persuaded a number of people to turn against him, to question everything about him, and he had a hard day. And we can see the account of that in the Gospels, but that was a hard day. Jesus goes back, as it were, to Mary and Martha and uh, Lazarus' home, spends the night, gets up early in the morning, walks back that couple of miles back into the city, and we see that in Matthew 21. And if we look down in verses 18 through 20, again, let's look at what Bill read for us just a little bit ago. It was early in that morning, and when he saw a fig tree, verse 19, he's hungry. And so he comes upon this fig tree, and I want you to notice a couple of things about it. The Bible is specific. First of all, he found no fruit on it, but what he did find was he found leaves on it. Now, if you know the, the, you know, the fig tree and you're, you know, what is it, a horticulturalist? Whatever it is. When you're somewhat familiar with plants, a botanist or whatever in the world it is, you know that when a fig tree has all its leaves out and it's of a certain age, if it's you know, got any age at all on it, it's bearing figs. And it really is a good fruit-bearing tree. My grandmother had some of them in the yard. And so he came upon this fig tree, and here's this apparently big fig tree that should, with all the leaves, you know, sprouted out and so forth, should have a lot of fruit, but it doesn't have any. And so as Bill read for us, he comes upon it, it doesn't have any fruit, so he curses it. Then from this point on, You never bear fruit again. And we look at that and we're like, wow, that's that's hard. Isn't that what the one-talent man was saying? I knew you were a hard man. But you look at the story and you see Jesus is saying of a fig tree, a fig tree has one purpose in God's creation, and that is to bear fruit. And we might make the easy parallel and say a Christian has one purpose in God's creation, and that is to bear fruit. And that you have a certain amount of time, and this isn't a seedling, it's not a new plant that somebody planted last week, it's not that kind of situation here, it's had its time. And it's just like us when we have our time. Our time is our life. And when Jesus comes to us, when we should have had time to be productive, And we should be using the good we have to do good. When Jesus takes account of us and we're in the same position as the fig tree, the judgment is going to be the same. Then from this point on, and that's really what he's saying when he condemns people into hell. Don't ever bear fruit again. You failed in your purpose and your time is up and you are never going to bear fruit again. And when the disciples respond back in verse 20, you'll notice, and I I think this is very interesting, because a number of translations will translate this in a way that basically says the, the disciples were marveling at this great big tree as though they saw it right before their eyes the moment he spoke the curse and it went down into nothing. And that may be exactly what happened and it may be exactly what it is saying here. But it's interesting to me, if you look at the language, that the language at least allows one other interpretation, or maybe both at the same time. And that is, how soon is the fig tree withered away? Meaning this, 
that we marvel at something that's had the time, at how quickly the time has gone by. We find that amazing, and we shouldn't. We've been, man has been on this earth for at least thousands of years, if not a whole lot of time. We've known that people grow old and they die. We've known that we have only a certain amount of time. We, even when we're young people, we hear older people talk about, and I mean all the time, how quickly life went by, don't we? And they're amazed at it. And they will tell us that so much, even when we're young, that in the back of our mind we're thinking, boy, I don't have a whole lot of time. And yet somehow with all of that, we're amazed when it's us, and suddenly Michael is 57 years old, and it's gone by so quickly. And I didn't accomplish, and I didn't do the things the Lord said you need to be doing. I wonder if the disciples are looking at this big, beautiful trip, and they're thinking like we tend to think as human beings. Isn't that pretty harsh? Isn't that pretty quick? Maybe give it some more time. It looks healthy. looks beautiful. It's got all those leaves. Maybe if you just gave it some more time. I wonder how many people will feel on Judgment Day if I'd only had a little more time. I know I had 80 years, or I had 100 years, or Methuselah. I know I had 969 years. But if you just gave me a little more time, I would have got around to it. I would have done what I needed to do. I would have got up the courage. I would have made myself sacrifice some time. Or whatever it is that's pulling me from doing it, I would have done what I know I needed to do. If you just gave me a little more time, how soon is that victory withered away? When good men do nothing, when good people refuse to do good, and when they refuse to do good, they could do with the ability they have, taking advantage of the opportunities they're given. When they fail to do that, it can only mean that whether in a small situation or in a great big situation, and I mean in an individual's life at a moment or all the way to the nation or the whole world, evil prevails. Evil triumphs. And that's exactly what Edmund Burke was saying. When good men do nothing, you get the triumph of evil. And you get the triumph of evil because those good men do nothing. When evil prevails... You can point back to some good person or some good people who didn't do what they were supposed to do. Let me give you a case in point. We may look at a church, for example. A lot of brethren did in the last century. And they looked at church after church after church after church fall and fail. It was a good church for a while. It seemed to be healthy like the fig tree. Everything seemed to be beautiful. Everything seemed to be fine, seemed to be right. And all of a sudden... They weren't a church anymore, or they weren't faithful anymore. They went off into this movement, they went off into that movement, they went in this direction, that direction, and suddenly they weren't our brethren anymore. What happened? And if we look at that, we might trace back the history of a particular church, and many people know many of those churches and their histories, and what you will find is there was a time when they... That is, the good people in that church could have done something. 
They could have stopped something. They could have changed something. They could have said no to something. They could have taken the hard row of objecting to other people when they were going in the wrong direction. But for whatever reason, they were afraid, they were lazy, they were this, they were that. They didn't. And because they didn't, evil prevailed. I wonder sometimes how many people, and as you look, and I love history. I love studying the kingdoms and all of that. Some people hate it. I love it. But I think often of real people in real places when kingdoms and nations fell. When everything was just fine. I give you case in point. You know, when Native American tribes, and we read records of this, when they were, when they were born, there were no white men in the area, you know? And everything was just as it had been for all, you know, as long as they knew, for all of time. And life was a certain way, and it was good, and they enjoyed it. And then all of a sudden, in a lifetime, in a generation's time, it was gone. Now, they didn't understand that. But you and I have insight to understand it. When the righteousness fails within a nation, it can be a tribe of American, Native Americans, it can be Rome, an empire like that, or it can be the United States of America. When it fails, it fails because righteousness no longer exalts it. And I think the same is true of individuals. And the person says, how does it happen? Trace it back to a point in time when there were good people. We may not know that, but he does. There were good people who could have made different choices, who could have done something differently, and they didn't. When good men, when good men do not do what they know they should be doing, then they give way to evil to try I want to look at a couple of verses that I looked at, and I'm not going to do this by me, but very briefly. But go with me to Ephesians 5. And you know that I was looking at the dear child of God just last week, and so I read these verses, so I'm not going to spend long here. But again, remember this part of it. We talk about the saint, the holy person, the beloved child of God. We talk about someone who lives a life, and if you remember I used the term confuting evil. And I, I used it because it's a word that means it overwhelmingly defeats evil. And it does it not just by argument, but by life, by proof within. So you get a, a good person who lives a good life, who says the good thing, and they overwhelmingly defeat the evil. Let's look at this in Ephesians 5 again. Verse 11, or verse 10. Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved, and here's our word, and I translated it confuted, are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever does make manifest is light. Notice that phrase. It is not just that I'm using the light. To refute the darkness. I go up to the darkness and I say, hey dude, you see right here? The light says you're dark. I'm not just doing that. I am saying it. But what I am doing is saying it when I myself have become light. And you can see that. You see, when I look at you know, the argument of Paul in Romans 2, and I, and I see Paul saying, 
you're a Jew. And do you, a Jew who teaches that someone else doesn't steal, do you commit adultery? Now what he's saying there, and we know the argument, is that you can say something is wrong, you can be wrong, and say something is wrong, and you're right to say it. Because it's wrong. If I'm an adulterer, and I say to a thief, man, you are a thief and you are wrong. That's correct. But the thief looks back at me and says, yeah, I steal a guy's money, you steal his wife. And he's right. It's just like the parent, for example, that will raise the child and say to the child, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other thing. And as the child grows up, they begin to say, wait a minute, you do this and you do that, you do the other thing. Is the parent right to tell the child not to? Of course he is. Is he telling the truth when he says to the child, you should not do so and so? Of course he is. Is the child right when he looks back at the parent and says, but yeah, you do so and so too? Of course he is. And we understand that. So the Bible is not telling us to simply stand against the light. I mean, stand against the darkness. It is telling us to be light while we stand against the darkness. And in that way, you, you overwhelmingly confute or absolutely refute the darkness. Make one final observation quickly and then I'm done. When good men do nothing, the truth is, as Jesus would define good, they can no longer be considered good. What I want to do as a human being is I want to look at the good in my life. And I do this often. You probably do too. I look at the good in my life and I say to myself, I have this little debate with myself, are you good or are you not good? And I look at all the good and I say, that's a lot of good. You're good. And I understand that no matter how good you are, you do sin, you make mistakes, etc. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that ongoing thing. that You know, like the one talent guy, as we call him, burying something. And when it's buried, it's there. It doesn't go away. It doesn't cease to exist. It's not, you know, it's okay for a while and then it comes back. It's none of that. It's there. And so here I am. I'm a good person. Why? Because by my definition, I do a lot of good. Some people would say I do more good than bad. But is that God's definition of being a good person? And I know that we all know that it is not. Let me go to 1 Peter chapter 3. And this passage was read earlier today. But go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me just look at verse 11 here. And remind us of, and this is something that's quoted even from the Old Testament. But remind us of the definition of good. Now this will sound very much like Job. And if you remember that God said of Job, he was a good man. And there's some things wrong, obviously. But he was a good man. Why? Well, because of this. Look at 1 Peter 3 verse 11. Uh, Starting verse 10. He that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. Okay, there's where you don't do something that's wrong, right? I mean, that's why I'm good. I don't do this and I don't do that. That's exactly what the Pharisee prayed in Luke 18. And I have no doubt he was telling the truth. So I don't do this, I don't do that. But notice verse 11. Let him eschew evil, the King James says. What does that mean? That means absolutely withdraw from it. I don't want any part of evil. person might say, so you never sin? Oh, no. I do sin. But even when I sin, I hate it. And I don't want any part of it. 
And what I am doing is I'm identifying what's wrong in my life, and I'm saying it's got to be better. It's got to be more. I've got to do a better job at this. I've got to overcome it. I've got to kill it. I'll let language in the Bible about what is wrong. Let him eschew evil. But notice, and do good. I've got to be actively going out there and doing good. And really, my time ought to be occupied doing good and replacing the time that I waste on doing what's wrong. Notice as he goes further. Let him seek peace. That's what Edward was talking about this morning. But notice, it's not just, well, when a situation comes, I'll yield to peace. That's not what he's saying here. And Edward was saying this morning, and rightfully so. No, what characterizes the servant of God is that he is a peacemaker. Notice verse 11. Let him seek peace and, and ensue it. And the word ensue means literally to chase. Let him chase it. Let him run after it. Let him be very creative in getting into situations where he can demonstrate the right way of things. Not just yield to peace when you have to because it's been forced upon you in a given situation. But literally chase it down. Now that's a good person. And if I can't do that and live that as a way of life, how do I consider myself, from a biblical definition, good I remind you of the passage of the rich young ruler and how the guy came running up to Jesus and said, Good master. You remember Jesus' response to that rich young ruler? Why do you call me good? There's only one that's good, and that's God. But then Jesus went on, and he began to say, you know, he said, What good thing should I do that I might inherit eternal life? And Jesus went on to say, Well, you know the commandments. Oh, man, you can see him swelling with pride, yeah. And I've kept him from my youth up. And Jesus doesn't object to it. We would probably say of that guy, man, that guy is a great guy. Good. He's great. Jesus looked deeper. One thing you lack. When I look at that rich young ruler, I look at it like the man with the one talent. One thing you lack. Here's this thing over here, and you've buried it, and you protect it, and you hold on to it. And I'm telling you, if you want to go to heaven, get rid of it. Go sell everything you have because it means too much to you. Give it to the poor and come follow me. The guy said, man, that's buried. (laughs) I ain't giving that up. And so he did. When good men do nothing, when they refuse to take advantage and do what they could, can you any longer consider them good? Well, I have time tonight to go further with that, but I, but I tell you of examples, and you know them. Was it enough that Reuben stood by while his brother sold him into slavery? Was that enough? He knew it was wrong. Was it enough that the Edomites stood on the sideline while their brethren, their cousins, if you will, the Jews, were being persecuted? Was that enough to stand on the sideline? Is it enough for me as a Christian to stand by while evil prevails, and not take my place to create and do good in this life. A good man, do nothing. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, and you look at your life and you say, I want to be a Christian. I want to serve Jesus Christ and give my life to Him. If you confess your belief in Him, and be willing to change your life, be baptized for forgiveness of your sins, you'll be a, a member of the kingdom of God. 
maybe you're here tonight as a child of God and you look at your life and you say, my life needs to be better. You're kind of like I'm feeling today. It's all right. It's okay. But it needs to be better. If I love my master, and I do, and I know you do, if I love him and I want to give my life to him, then I want to do even more. And I want to do that every day. You hear and you want to ask for the prayers of the people, and I hope you'll pray for me in that. But if you want to ask for the prayers of the brethren, I know they'd like to do that together.